Hello, I'm Izzy. And I'm Jessica. And welcome back to season two of The, the Greatest, Greatest Genre. We are here, we are back, we are better than ever, and we are ready to dive into the world of Crescent City with you. I feel like an idiot. I'm just sitting here teasing <laughs> because I'm so excited. Me too. This has been like my favorite reread to date. I think I think I agree. I've reread a lot of favorite books of mine over the years outside of Sarah J Mass as well. This reread is very special. It's just more dense than I can tell. There's more to piece together. There are more Easter eggs, all the things that we love about SJM. This world, just these more. characters are they're I mean, they're stunning. They're everything. So if you are here for the first time, welcome. Oh my God. If you're reading these books for the first time with us, (laughs) I cannot tell you how excited I am for you. And if you're incredible here as a repeat listener, welcome back. Welcome back. so appreciative that you are still here with us and that you're still um, dealing with us. So here's how season two is going to go. In preparation for a launch of A House of Flame and Shadow, we are pivoting over, obviously, to the Crescent City series. Every time you say that, I get goosebumps. I know. (laughs) I understand. (laughs) So we can re-familiarize ourselves with the world building, the characters, the plot, all of it, the theories. Nothing is off the table. But we're going to do it a little bit differently from season one. We are, yes. And if you've listened to our trailer, this mm-hmm. might be a little bit redundant for you. But we are going to be doing topic-based episodes this season. We are going to be releasing one each week leading up to the release of House of Flame and Shadow. On January 30th. On January 30th. It is the Super Bowl for those of us yes. who follow. <laughs> so we are kicking off the six weeks leading up to House of Flame and Shadow, obviously, with this episode. And today's topic is an introduction to the world of Crescent City. This is going to be your crash course. Yep. We are going to be giving you an extremely in-depth introduction to Midgard, to all of the forces that play in these series. We are going to be talking about the world, the rules that exist in this world. We're going to get into the history and the lore as well. And it's just going to be a really deep analysis of how the setting has kind of influenced the story. Totally. Yeah. And before we kind of dive in, we just Mm -hmm. want to shout out a few people. We really used all resources available to us. The SJM community is incredible. I just want to start Mm -hmm. off by saying that. Like, as a whole, you all are just amazing. Like, we are freaks and started a podcast about it, but we are by no means even, like, the most knowledgeable passionate or knowledgeable no. fans. And so we... Well, I just two best friends who really like to talk about it. We <laughs> are so lucky to be a part of this fandom where so many people put together incredible resources. And so we do want to shout out, in particular... Yaz the Bookish mm-hmm. is amazing and we've actually we've interacted with her back and forth a couple of times and she is just so kind and wonderful and she puts together the most detailed guides honestly like, go take a look before you even they're, start reading they're detailed they're beautifully designed and they are just they're spot on and so we leaned heavily on some of these guides as we prepped for this episode because we wanted to make sure that we were getting everything correct and doing our for due you diligence all. I'd also like to thank Reddit 
<laughs> just the, just the SJM Reddit community in, at large. <laughs> the Mass Bus is an incredible place to be. Yes, in like the I said, Reddit. all of you, all of you make this an incredible fandom to be a part of, and you make it really easy for us to be like when we're prepping, when we have a question for the two of us, what do we immediately do? We just go, go to, to the Reddit. SJM Reddit, yep, and it's, it's and it's perfect great. in every way. Everyone who contributes to the to the Crescent City Wiki is amazing that is a space that is curated by fans and I think it's an incredible forum for all of us to continue to kind of interact and show our passion for these books and it's a great thing now given that there is a lot to cover in this episode we did want to divide this up this will be the only episode of season two that has spoiler free content the first portion of this episode is going to be essentially everything that we kind of wish we wish could have we known, known because there is a lot of information dumping Thrown that happens at you. we're trying to set you up for success and if it happens you have fast. not read both books yet like this yes. is going to be helpful for you just to get your head around right the world as it exists at this moment in time when you start reading House of Earth and Blood. Yeah, and a lot of this content was crafted from basically like the frequently asked questions that we get when we've we've recommended these books to a lot of people mm-hmm. and we get a lot of the same questions when they start Earth and Blood in particular. You know, there's a lot of confusion around weight, how exactly does all of this work? What kind of world it's is this? It's like that feeling that you get Ooh. when you start any fantasy novel, but it's times 10, I feel like, in Crescent City. Yes, because this is a very complex <clears throat> world, mm-hmm. and that's the amazing thing about Sarah's writing is that it just keeps getting better so and better good. and better. I will say, throne, there was a lot going on in Throne of Glass, but it happens very gradually. Gradually. No, you get thrown right With in. With Crescent City, there's a lot going on, and you are dropped right into the thick of it. And so the first portion of this episode is going to be kind of that crash course. There will be no spoilers. Mm-hmm. It's just an intro in kind of layman's terms breakdown of the world that you are getting dropped into and everything that is helpful to understand so that you can just sort of start experiencing the events that are unfolding without having to go backwards every three pages and be like, wait, what is a veneer? (laughs) Because I thought it was something that goes on your teeth. (laughs) I remember thinking the same thing. Be like, interesting choice. (laughs) So without further ado... I think we should dive into it. And when we are, before we enter into spoiler land, just as we did in the first couple of episodes of season one. warning. A very clear warning. When to exit the podcast. Very clear. Very, very clear. Very clear. I think we should zoom out a little bit because the only map we are given is a map of Luna. Crescent City. Oh, of Lunathion. There is another visual from, that is created actually by Yaz the bookish. And this is a visual that, was really helpful to me as I was kind of sifting through all of this. And it is just, it's not a map per se. Actually, it's not a map at all. But it is a visual that breaks down, we're going to go planet Midgard, the continents, and then the cities. So just kind of talking you through that. So we'll go ahead and throw that up on the screen first. And then we can sort of and zoom we'll in zoom and do okay, the good idea, map. good idea. And I, you made a really good point at the beginning of all of this because this is a very different landscape. And I think that we should just shout it out to right series away. So this is like the other two series that SJM has written. It very Throne much of feels like Akatar. Feels like the kind of old time fantasy. It's a very traditional fantasy setting. Correct. Now this one is. 
as SJM has actually mentioned in a most recent interview, this is how she imagined like her childhood in New York City, but in the fantasy world. So but you if expect we, but if it. all of the magical things that we wish were real were actually real. Exactly. <laughs> but when you're reading it, you immediately notice you're in a very modern world, mm-hmm. but then very quickly you realize it actually isn't the same sort of society that we are in now. So it's modern, but very medieval things happen. Medieval, ancient, horrible, crazy. The the societal norms of today are, are not, not what is happening. Are not in to City. a T what is allowed to go on. And it's a, it's a really incredible blend of cultures I think the old world and the modern world Mm -hmm. right because in some in some ways it is really progressive things like sexuality and gender Mm -hmm. and that sort of thing and you have cell phones and you have electricity and all of these just very day-to-day things that we experience in our world yep smartphones laptops websites hackers there's just all All kind there's a there's a lot of technology modern technology but to Isabel's point, there is also incredibly brutal practices that are we really do. more akin to something you would see in a show about Vikings or mm-hmm. ancient Rome. At least or not modern in the Western sense of the world. Correct. Correct. And there are, there, like, the institution of slavery is still very real. Very, very And so much it's so. a really incredible blend this world of those ancient old world practices and everything that is normal to us today, like reality TV. Yeah. So you know, shout out to SJM for, for making it it's an something that we could experience at the same time. New take on high fantasy. I loved it. It was. It was great. So let's zoom out of the world that we are we're in. All the way out. We're in <laughs> outer space. Out. We're looking down on a planet, which is where we're going to start. And the planet where all of these events take place you is called... You might have heard of it before. Might have, it might sound familiar to you if you have watched any of the Marvel Thor movies. <laughs> if you've or, entered the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you will know about Midgard. Midgard. <laughs> or if you're, you know, knowledgeable about Norse mythology, mm-hmm. Midgard in Norse mythology is the planet inhabited by mortals. mortals. It is the mortal realm, which is fitting in so many ways. And we have talked about this before in season one about how incredible and how very detailed Sarah is when it comes to naming things and choosing names for so her settings and for her characters. And so Midgard is the planet where all this is happening on. And it really only has two major continents. Mm-hmm. They're continents. They are also kind of countries. That's Valbara and Pangera. And I love and the point that you discovered so about this. I remember always thinking like, I know about Pangea as an old continent. I feel right. Like we, we all heard about like Pangea the, like when we learned about the dinosaurs and the then, tectonic plates. But then I did a little Google while I was prepping for this episode. And the reason that we don't know as much about Valbara, spelled V-A-A-L-B-A-R-A, differently from Valbara in the book, which is V-A-L-B-A-R-A, mm-hmm. is because a lot of scientists do not actually believe that it existed, at least not the same, like not in the same way as Pangea, which is pretty much agreed upon in the scientific okay. community but the two that are agreed they were two they like exist, super continents super continents are Pangea and Valbara and so I just, I just I know <laughs> I just love her so much I how does she, how does she do it I don't know that's I don't know brilliant I didn't even I would never even have thought it would be so much easier for her to just like make come up. up with fun names of things oh my god Jessica 
What? We haven't cheersed. Oh, God. We do this every time. We get to, I'm just so excited. I know we do. Okay. So separating these two continents. Yes. Is the Haldron Sea. We should probably Google Haldron as well to see if there's any significance to that. But we can do that at a later date. Okay. Or you know what? You all can do that for yourselves. Exactly. And email us and let us know <laughs> if there is anything we should know about Haldron. Because Sarah just hides clues everywhere. Yeah, I'm not seeing anything right off the bat. So okay. we're good. All right. Well, maybe somebody else will uncover something. Exactly. But yes, so we have Valbara and we have Pangera. And Valbara is the continent in which Lunetheon exists. Mm -hmm. Lunetheon is a very old city and it kind of functions as a city-state. So there's not necessarily countries the way that we have today where it goes continent, country, city, Mm -hmm. town, that sort of thing. You've got these massive continents and then you've basically just got sort of city-states within them. Yep. And so on Valbara, you have Lunetheon, and then you have Avalon. And these are the ones that we know, the, the main ones that are mentioned in the books. Yes, there are more, but the only ones that mm-hmm. up to this point play a role in the story on Valbara are Lunathion, which is Crescent, Crescent City. City. That is where the majority of all of this action takes place. And then you have Avalon, which are sort of, it's like a misty, they're like islands. The islands off of the actual One continent. major island. Yeah. And then I think there are some smaller some ones, smaller ones yeah, sprinkled around. They are like shrouded in like mist and they are not actually part of the physical mainland. Yes. And then you have Nidaros, which is outside of... Lunetheon. I think it's a couple hundred miles outside. Like Bryce always mentions, that he has to get that. She has to get that by train. Like, yeah, it takes a couple of hours. It's a little bit of a trek. Yes, and I believe that it is mostly inhabited by humans. Yes, and maybe some fae, but it is mostly humans. Yeah, and we'll get into the breakdown of all of the different creatures and mm-hmm. races and everything, and how that is yep. divided out. But then you have Pangera, and Pangera is where the Eternal City is. This is where the Asteri, which again, we will talk about more. Yes, the Asteri are the supreme beings. They rule all of Midgard, the whole planet, and their seat of power is the Eternal City, which is in Pangera. Exactly. It is also where, at the beginning of the story, there is an active rebellion going on. Majority Mm -hmm. human, some veneer, but majority, it is a human uprising against the control of the Asteri, but it is happening across the sea from just in Pangera. It is I happening think in the in northern Pangera. areas of Pangera, and it is not yet, as of this moment, it has begin. not crossed the sea over into. There have been little Valbara. things, but that like nothing major. Yep the the Asteri's forces have kept it contained to Pangera, so that kind of that kind of sets the the larger sort of zoomed out. And literally, Jessica, when I was reading Earth and Blood, it took me almost until the end of the book to figure out that that's what was going on. It's tough. It really is. Because that's a really, that's just a lot of context. But But I commend her for not taking the easy way out and having some kind of scene where you get the, you know, that's my biggest pet peeve. Context Context for context's sake. When two characters are having a conversation that they would never actually have because they live in that world and they would know that and so they wouldn't be spelling it out for each other. You definitely have to work to piece it together for yourself. I hate that. Mm -hmm. And I love that she, so I love that she didn't do it and I love that we get to do it. Yes, Because we're not characters in the story. We are readers and so we can dumb it down for you and give you the step-by-step, play-by-play. 
So as Jess mentioned, we're going to zoom in to Lunathion yes. slash Crescent City now. And it has been rebranded to Crescent City. Yes. Basically. Like I mentioned before, it's a very old city. The Temple of Luna is very old. It kind of sits at the center. The, the, city, the city sort of expanded around it. around it. It is, the, the walls are circular. And it is split into seven major districts or boroughs if you will, which is how we say them in London, actually. Well, and it's New York, Mm -hmm. which is where Sarah grew up. And I just feel like she kind of, she took, you know, she must have taken a little bit of inspiration from, you know, Manhattan, Brooklyn. You know, these are all the different boroughs But of course there are seven because we're in the fantasy genre and seven is a magical number. Seven is a very magical, it's complete. It is the number. It is, it's very important. So yes, there are seven districts and... Nearly all of the districts kind of have their own sort of head authority figure. Mm -hmm. So just kind of running through those. We're actually going to start at the bottom of this map. And I do think it's worth noting, this is the only map we've been given so far. Yeah, and this is actually, that's an important point because in her other two series, we are given a map of the world as a whole. And as we know, we don't know what this means yet, but SJM doesn't actually do anything by accident ever. And she only gives us a map to the city proper itself and its and its surrounding walls, we barely see anything going past like the eastern or the western road. Mm -hmm. There really isn't much. And so we will, you know, take she's hyper focused on Lunathion. And to be fair, Crescent City. almost all of the action in both books does take place within the city itself. But there are certain scenes mm-hmm. that do expand outside. Without spoiling anything, exactly. we will say, like, this is a city that is part of a larger world for a reason. Mm-hmm. And so it is interesting to me that the only map we have been given up to this point is a map of Lunathion specifically, this kind of zoomed in. Mm-hmm. Even in Akatar, we never got a map of like the spring court. No, not at all. And in the seven boroughs that Jess is about to outline, it is important to note that we're going to go through all of their rulers, mm-hmm. but there is one archangel that rules over all of them. Yes. Yep, exactly. So starting from the bottom here, I'm just going to sort of start from 6 p.m. if it were a clock. <laughs> and so I'm going to start with the Bone Quarter. This is... It's a very scary place. It, yeah, <laughs> it's a little bit dark. So I'll just list them off. So it goes, there's the Bone Quarter, the Meat Market, the Central Business District, Asphodel Meadows, Five Roses, Moonwood, and the Old Square. There is also the Blue Court, which is not really a part of the city because it exists actually beneath the waters of the Istros River. It's very mysterious. Very mysterious. (laughs) So, okay, so diving into these one at a time. The Bone Quarter, this is the territory of the Under King, and he's got a very creepy, grim reaper kind of vibe going on, and he's just very dark and scary. And, like, whenever he is mentioned in... Earth and blood, it is done with a level of like respectful yet scared reverence. Everyone's like, seems to get the heebie jeebies. Nobody really, yeah. super scary. You don't really want to ever have a reason to be crossing paths. Seems with like he sounds scary and is scary. Sounds scary, is scary. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, similarly, the meat market <laughs> is also Which, very sort of shady, sketchy. It's giving the tenderloin in San Francisco. Foreboding. Like, this is, you don't. You don't really mess with people who hang out in the meat market. It's it's giving mall 
mafia. Yeah, it's and sort also of giving like you a know, lot of the area of town that's like run just seedy, really run seedy. by seedy people. There's and a lot of it black is worth market noting, trade that goes on there. Worth noting in the meat market that a lot of like the half fae, half human, um, do end up there as those selling their vez. Yes. There's a lot of skin trade. Mm-hmm. There's skin trade that goes on there. There's black market trade that goes on there. And fighting then, of course, pits. there are the fighting pits that are run by the Viper Queen. And the Viper Queen is the head honcho of the meat market yep. district. Yes. She has an asp shifter. She's an asp shifter with who produces her own venom that is apparently highly addictive. Mm-hmm. Though not... Fatal. No, not seem. fatal. Which is interesting because usually venom, snake venom is... It's not good for you. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> yeah, but I've never really heard of it being taken as a drug. So this is... She's a very interesting character. A very mysterious character. Mm-hmm. And she runs these fighting pits. That's where a lot of money is also changing hands. There's lots of gambling that goes on in the meat market. Mm-hmm. It's just a very seedy, shady place. Full of intrigue. And one that you will uh, read about it's, in Earth and it's, Blood. It's full of secrets. <laughs> what is that from? Mean Girls. Her, oh yeah, why is her hair for it? So big. Secrets. Secrets. Okay, so moving up the to clock. The Central Business the District. Central Business District. This is the largest district mm-hmm. in Lunetheon. And it's kind of like the capital city within the city-state. Um, this is where the Comitium is. It is the name, or the Comitium is the name given to the compound that encompasses you know the governor's mansion is there all of the government buildings are there the barracks for the military are there the 33rd legion and it is the home and operating center of micah domitus who Mm. is the governor of lunathion yes and again, just to reiterate, Micah Domitus is the governor. He is an archangel, an archangel. And he was appointed by the Asteri. He is the head he honcho of Lunathion. only to, and we'll talk about the, the structure of leadership in a little mm-hmm. bit, but just to make a long story short, yes. he only answers to the Asteri. He was appointed by the Asteri to govern Lunathion at the pleasure of the Asteri. Yes. I don't like the word pleasure when used in conjunction with the Asteri. But I understand that you had to do it. (laughs) I think without getting too too much more into the power structure, that's so that's the central business district. It's big. I imagine it with lots of like skyscrapers. Lots of skyscrapers. Lots everything's very new and shiny and tacky and yeah. Yeah. So then, ironically, moving on, you have Ashfordell Meadows. And Asphodel Meadows is actually the district where I would say almost all of the humans in Lunetheon reside. And they don't, they're not given a seat at the table. No. We'll get into this a little bit later. The humans are like the lowest class yes. of residents within the city. This they is are without just, socioeconomic status. And this is this just world. a corner of the city where they can at least be free of mistreatment and... I kind of imagine it like the slums, even though I'm sure it's not slummy, but it's like... I I, mean, I think it's pretty close. It's not a a place you would want to live. They don't... I don't think they have a lot of high tech. I don't think they have a lot of protection in place for any of their Mm -hmm. citizens. And so it's just... It's kind of a dismal... But I'm given the impression in the writing in the first book that the reason humans choose to reside here is either, one, they don't have a choice because they're slaves, or it's because the job opportunities are still better in Lunathion slash Crescent City than they are in the rest of the continent. 
just another quick note about this because we love Sarah so much. Yeah. Asphodel Meadows was something that I, on the first read, assumed had been made up. And as I was typing out notes during the reread, I kept noticing that Asphodel was not being underlined as, you know, not a real word. <laughs> so I Googled it and it turns out that it is at Asphodel is actually, it is a flower. It is a member of the lily family. But more importantly, and perhaps a little bit more relevant to this discussion, Asphodel was said to grow in the Elysian fields, which is in Greek mythology, the, it, it was like heaven. Or, or Valhalla. So in Greek mythology, the Elysian fields were where only the greatest mortal heroes could go to rest in the afterlife. So for her to give the name of the mortal quarter, mm-hmm. the name of this flower that grew only for the greatest heroes, I think is a really cool... She's a letting homage. us know that while the humans are... While the humans may be seen by everyone else as something very low, I think this is a really beautiful way of her planting a seed that says there is greatness still that comes from those of you that may think you are the lowest and the smallest. Mm. But we won't get into that too deeply now. So after Asphodel Meadows, you have the five roses. Or Phyro. I was going to (laughs) say. Affectionately or maybe not so affectionately known as Phyro. What is it in like? Uh, it does it in San, in San Francisco? It's like high low or like no pal, like north of the Panhandle, or like you have like Soho. I was gonna say Soho, yeah. No, yeah. Um, so you have Fyro, and this is home majority. I think Valbar and Fay. A yes. lot of the Fay live here. I think there could be some shifters that live in that live here as well. Maybe maybe some. Malakim, although the Fay and the Malakim do not get along. I think it's important to note that like it is not like so rigidly structured that there are not exceptions to any of these correct, rules. Correct, correct, correct. But yes, the general the general status is that it is mostly fae, wealthy fae that live in I was going to say, district. it's not necessarily that all of Five Roses is inhabited by the wealthy fae or the fae nobility, but I'm pretty sure all of the fae nobility and or fae royalty live, live in the Five Roses. Correct. So that's just kind of something to note about this particular district and the leader of this district is the autumn king and he is high fey and he is the king of all valbaran fey whether they live in five roses or slash lunetheon or not he is the king of the valbaran fey important to know that he does not rule over the avalon fey he does not i'll just leave it at that correct also, I just have to say, it's kind of cool that Ethan's pack is called Four Roses, and the phase district is called Five Roses. Oh, that is cool. Yeah. Um, okay, continue. Okay, continuing. So, the Autumn King has been the ruler of this district for about 400 years, so he's been around for a very long time, but he does, even though he is called a king in his title, he still answers to Micah, mm-hmm. because Micah was appointed by the Asteri. Correct. So, after Five Roses, we have Moonwood. And this is the home of the wolves predominantly. So all of the wolf shifters live in Moonwood. And the, again, officially unofficial head of Moonwood is the prime of all of the wolves in Lunathion. I think it's also, in is it in the continent as well? I think the prime happens to live in Lunathion and he is the leader oh, of all his... the wolves on the continent. But... It, of Valbara. Of, of Valbara. Yes. Correct. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. I believe that is correct. Yes. <clears throat> so that kind of takes us all the way around our circle here. 
I'm going to jump into the middle and talk a little bit about the Old Square. Another notable location. Yep. So the Old Square is, the Old Square is very cool. It's considered kind of like a neutral space. It's a public space. It's an open space. It is the home of Luna's Temple, which is the ancient site that the whole city was kind of built around. Mm -hmm. And it is also the home to the Oracle. And the Oracle is considered like the head of the Old Square, but she is not... She's it's not a direct she's not a direct political player. So so let me just make sure I understand you correctly. So she is one of the seven heads of the city, but she does not per se have her own territory in the city. It's more like a figurehead position. Yes. Correct. She is okay. she is a figure of respect mm-hmm. and she has been around for a very long time, <clears throat> but she does not participate in things like the summit. And I believe there are a finite number of oracles in mid-god. Yes, she is a being of great power, mm-hmm. but she does not wield any real influence you know she in the politics of? of Lunetheon. She kind of reminds me of the Serial, how they're like a very specific oh, number. Oh yeah, I think that's very, I think that's a very, cereals. yep, I think that's a very good comparison to draw. Cool. Absolutely. And then the other, the other sort of district that we have to talk about is the Blue Court. And again, as I mentioned, it is, you know, in the Istros River, it is separate from the rest of Lunetheon in a lot of ways, probably in more ways than it is a part of Lunetheon. But the River Queen, who rules over the Blue Court, Mm -hmm. does still at the end of the day answer to Micah. She's given more freedom. I think of the the Blue Court as, as being a little bit like a Vatican city within the country of Italy. Right. Like they have a, they are given a lot of Freeway. Freedom, and they are—they have their own jurisdiction over, yeah, over I their be- own people. I believe they don't show up to the stuff that the rest of the heads of state are required to show up to. Typically, yeah. she does send a delegate to the summit at the end of <clears throat> Earth and Blood, mm-hmm. but that's because that's like a very special occasion. On the whole, they operate independently but adjacent to. Yeah, and pretty much all members of the, like all people who yeah. reside in the River Court are members, and we'll talk about this a little bit more mm-hmm. um, momentarily, of uh, the House of Many Waters. Yes. Which, again, to me, seems like the most separate out of the four houses to the other three. Right. Just the same way that the Blue Court is. Correct. And you will see when you look at your map that the other thing that is labeled besides these particular districts are the gates. <clears throat> and there are seven gates. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Throughout <laughs> Lunetheon. And these gates are, it's difficult to talk difficult about. To say. It's difficult to say exactly what the they gates are. They are made out of quartz, mm-hmm. um, mined, like massive, massive slabs of quartz that I believe are mined from like northern mountains in Valbara. So still on this continent. Um, mm-hmm. And they, like, in ancient times, were used as a mean of communication between different sectors of the city. Yes. And you actually get a really good breakdown early on in Earth and Blood about how the gates work and what they mm-hmm. mean to the city. So, actually, yeah, Bryce and Donica use them. And it's and it happens very early on, so I don't think it's something I that agree. we need to break down here. But basically, each district, each court, court. gets a gate sort of assigned to it. Even Asphodel Meadows, there is the mortal gate. There is the gate. mortal gate. Yeah, and you and you have to, the way they work is basically it's a trade system. Like mm-hmm. you give a drop of your power. And I'm not sure how that works for the humans now that I think about it. But you, I don't think they can, commu- I don't think that they were ever meant to, commu- you know, it's, 
it's a mechanism yeah. for the veneer. But you give a, a very, very, very minuscule, tiny drop of your power and you are able to talk through the gate or like make a wish, right? Yeah, they've become kind of tourist attractions, yeah. particularly the heart gate, which is in old, which is in mm-hmm. the old, um, the old sorry, sector, the old square, the, the old square. square. I was mm-hmm. going to say old town. Hi, mm-hmm. we live in Virginia. <laughs> um which is in the old square and that has become a big like tourist attraction basically, you know, and people people touch the disc in front of the gate and it zaps a little bit of your energy, your kind of like life force and it doesn't deplete you in any no, way. No, not at all. But, you know, once you, once it takes it's a It's like a drop in the ocean, if you will, of your power. And it is very similar, I would say, to like visiting something like the Trevi Fountain where there's all this, it's become a source of lore, a source yes, of exactly. mysticism. It's kind of legendary. It's like kissing the Blarney Stone or something. Kissing the Blarney Stone, tossing, you know, tossing something into backwards into yeah. the Trevi Fountain. It's, it's a big touristy attraction. And again, yeah. there's a great scene <clears throat> between Bryce and Danica very early on in House of Earth and Blood that talks about the gates a little bit more and I think they do a really good job of it. So I think the next thing to discuss now that we sort of have that zoomed in view of where our characters are living and operating day to day is to discuss this is a this is kind of a cast society. Yeah. And I think that let's begin with talking about the four houses of Valbara. So we've done the geography of Lunathion, but let's talk about... So Valbara, so the houses don't extend throughout Midgard. It's just in Valbara Mm -hmm. where these classifications are... I believe so. Okay. And these were established, and we'll talk about this again a little bit later in the episode, probably in the spoiler section, but... Basically, after the first wars were finished, as of, I believe it says in on the first page of the book, as of 33 VE, which I mm-hmm. believe stands for Veneer Era. Okay. And then there was um, HE, which was the human era. And I might be getting that wrong. But I know that they do it kind of like BC and AD, like the way that we do, like after the first wars were done. So about 33 years after the first wars ended, the... Sort of the inception <clears throat> of this whole house civilization. System. I kind of think of it as the Harry Potter houses, even though it's super not. These houses represent the totality of the creatures in the world of yeah. Valbar. It's it's almost scientific. Mm-hmm. All it's not, but, but it's not because it's also super racist. But it, it yeah, <laughs> it's really and it, we learn important that it is you a can, caste system and, and you it can plays in, from your house and it plays into the larger feudal system that really is sort of the basic structure mm-hmm. of this civilization of Valbar. Correct. And this is outlined pretty early in her books. I think she even has it on the first page before the actual story begins. But we have the House of Earth and Blood, mm-hmm. which is the namesake of our first book. <laughs> and these are creatures that uh, were picked by Luna. Uh, the goddess. Yeah, and each house is associated with, with kind of a patron goddess. Mm-hmm. And so or in God. this house are humans, because humans still have a house, shifters, yes. witches, and animals. So characters like Donica would be house of earth and blood. Mm-hmm. Apaxia would be house of earth and blood. Bryce is half house of earth and blood because her mother is. But house she, of earth as and blood. we learn early on in the book, has to sweat allegiance to the house of sky and breath and that house is associated with solace you might be familiar with the phrase burning solace <laughs> and members of this house include the angels or the malachim mm-hmm. the fae the elementals and the sprites but they were technically kicked out and don't even have a house which is so sad i want La and Hava it's to wrong have a house. It's, it's so wrong, wrong. and it's 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 
And the sprites were kicked out because of their role in the rebellion. Not the first wars that were 15,000 years ago, the rebellion that was 2,000 years ago. And we will explain that a little bit further later on in the episode. I said, did I say 2,000? I meant 200. I'm so sorry. And then we have the House of Many Waters, which we just discussed a little bit beforehand. Mm-hmm. And that is to, the, and that is associated with the goddess Ogenus. Oh, that's so it? funny. I've been saying Ogenus. <laughs> Oh, God. I don't know. I think that I, I think might we'll be just correct. Do, I think we'll just do whatever you think is say is best. It sounds and better in your accent are, anyway. Those are the uh, the river sprites, the knocks. We Ugh. get. We do Ugh. get to interact with a knock in Earth and Blood and the Kelpies. We hate We it. hate it. Um, <laughs> like Therion would be a member of the House of Many Waters. Which is interesting because like, there are aquatic shifters mm-hmm. as well, but the mer are not considered to be aquatic no. shifters. Like there are shark shifters or dolphin shifters, correct? But and I think that mer are different. Yeah, and it's and and there was actually a note like even for House of Sky and Breath, there are a couple in there chosen by Luna. Like they, they again, it's not completely rigid, as in there's absolutely yeah. no room for you know yeah. going between the houses but this is the general the general way of things and then there's the house of flame and shadow and this one contains reapers dark and it's scary very house. dark and scary <laughs> it wouldn't be my preference demonaki belong to this house wraiths vampires vamp Vampires? Vamp- I know it's vampires, but it's like but it's vampires. spelled with a y it's vampires like, even like the traditional vampires, Romanian spelling yeah. And the necromancers. necromancers. Which is a very scary business, yeah. <laughs> seems like, if you ask me. So the houses, the way they work, they can either have one ruler. So, for example, the House of Flame and Shadow, they all technically answer to the Underking. Yes. Or they it's can like, choose. It's like all things dead or yeah, death and, related. And, just and he sort of like is, is death. all of that. <laughs> Again, Sounds scary is scary. Yeah. <laughs> I I don't know that I if I weren't born into it, I don't know that I would be being like super You know what? That's a club say. that I want to be a part of. I don't know that that would be me, but but you know, interesting that Jaceba To each their own Jaceba, which we will talk about like in she, a couple of episodes. She was born into the House of Earth and Blood, which but she, I would be psyched about, by the way. Yeah, she defected and she went to the House of Flame and Shadow. The House Shadow. of Flame and Shadow is basically Slytherin. <laughs> <laughs> See, okay, hang on. Can we, can we, can we, quick sideball. Yeah, 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 yeah. Let's okay, do it. So Slytherin, obviously Flame and Shadow. Who yep. is Gryffindor? I Earth think it's Blood. Earth and Blood. Okay, Earth totally. Blood. We're in agreement. Sky and Sky Breath, Breath is Ravenclaw. Ravenclaw and and Many Waters is, is Hufflepuff. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You guys could let us know if you agree. Let us know if you have a different take. I actually would be su- – that's actually such, such a, fun a fun game. game. And I – like, we are so aligned on that. We I don't even have yep. to think about it. Nope. That happens um, live in front one, of everybody. One very important distinction is so the houses can either have one ruler, a.k.a. like the underking, or they can choose to divide rulership between powerful veneer. So, for example – the Sky and Breath, the Fey and the Malakim kind of both have heads of ha- prefects, if you will. Actually, wait, then- so going back on this whole, like, okay, <laughs> I'm actually, you know what? I'm doubling down on this because House of Flame and Shadow, I feel like people are going to have opinions on this. Yes, I know that Slytherin is not all bad. Uh, 
Slytherin slaps. Slytherin is sick also. And like, okay, Jaseba, we're going to talk about this, but like, she's Jaseba totally is a Slytherin. an insane character and she would be in the House of Slytherin. One so thousand I'm percent. doubling down on this that like, yes, there are amazing, cool, brave, like characters mm-hmm. that come from Slytherin, but on the whole, they're a rotten bunch. Yeah. <laughs> and so is the House of Flame and Shadow. Not to be trifled with. Not to be trifled okay, with. Okay, mm-hmm. that's all else I wanted to say. So that is the general breakdown of the houses mm-hmm. in Midgod. Yes. Now, let's talk about the Vinia versus the Loas and like what that means. And then we'll go into the rulership system. Right, because there's, there's sort of two... There's basically there's, mortals and... Immortals in quotation marks. People with a very, very extended right. there's life. A, there's a macro set of distinctions and then the micro. And the houses are actually kind of the micro mm-hmm. set of distinctions. And those determine, I don't know, I'm sure they determine things within the government, like when you take census or when you're doing taxes. Although, important to note that it is rude to ask someone their house if you do not know it. It's way, I think the house thing is way more like demographic, socioeconomic. It's, it's kind like, of like, are you a Republican or a Democrat kind he, of situation? May, maybe. Kind, it's like not quite the same, but same vibe-ish. Because it's definitely like a political alliance thing. Well, but it would also, like I think it's also kind of like, I think it's closer to like just flat out asking someone, what's your race? Mm, okay, I like that. Do you see what I mean? Because, yeah. because it is dependent on like, like what what, what type of creature are you? Yeah. Like what were you born into this world as? Which is just something that no one has any control over. Which is why the people who they're like half breeds. So to, and I just say that in quotation marks and with no because that is the way they are referred to in, in the, the books. books. They can belong to either house, and they are kind of looked down upon in society. But we'll get into that in a little bit. There yes. are there are a lot of flaws within this system, mm-hmm. but that is what makes it interesting to read about. So the veneer. Uh, basically anybody with magical properties or extended life. Right. So again, so this is the macro distinction mm-hmm. and it kind of just puts you into two buckets. Well, three. So there are the there are the veneer, which is spelled V-A-N-I-R, mm-hmm. and that you you start to pick up on that very quickly what in the series. I super started spelling it like V-E-N during this <laughs> and had to check myself multiple times. <laughs> Ven- veneer. <laughs> but yeah, so the veneer are all of the beings that have power innately Mm -hmm. which is sometimes it's magic sometimes it's just like really heightened raw like energy it's like they produce their own energy yeah and and we and we can kind of split those into two like the high the higher veneer and the lesser veneer and basically the higher veneer are essentially those with humanoid humanoid forms so you've got your fey you have the Mm -hmm. angels which are also referred to as the malachim yeah and then you have your shifters. shifters those are all upper or higher veneer and then there's lesser veneer and those are anything not human-like and they do not actually have full citizenships those are those are characters like syrinx and like the otters which are the most adorable things ever and i cannot believe they do not have full rights they're so cute they're so cute yeah and even even the sprites were considered to be lower veneer because they do not have the humanoid form and i think like i think vampires and and reapers because reapers can take whatever physical form they they, or no sorry those are wraiths 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 can do that i think reapers are considered to be i don't know actually if that again like they don't go into every single character in this that's true i I would guess that they are if a veneer veneer. has a humanoid humanoid form they're probably 
like higher veneer and that's and that's your highest class Mm -hmm. of society regardless of what house you're in correct if you are a higher veneer you you get full rights no doors are really closed to you and you have the highest socioeconomic status and everyone treats you with respect nobody's gonna mess with you or try and take advantage of you you get all the best jobs you get all the best education less of veneer actually i would say are treated closer to how Loas are treated. And Loas are any beings that basically are not veneer and they are essentially slaves or close to it. Right. In and terms that's, of their right. You've got your humans, your regular animals mm-hmm. that don't have any kind of magic, right? Like mm-hmm. sprites or chimeras or dragons. Mm-hmm. Those are animals in a sense. They but they are creatures that possess magic. Correct. That possess power. Unlike uh, mortal human beings and regular animals. And a lot of the Loas live in designated pockets of society like like Asphodel Meadows mm-hmm. because that is where they are safe and where they yes. do have rights at least within their communities. And they're far less likely to be food used, <laughs> used and abused by the rest of the scary and, veneer correct. members and of society. And they will never be full citizens or Civitas, as they say in yeah. the book. And I believe that slaves technically have the same rights as humans in the world of Crescent City. And But slaves can really take any form. They can be in any house. And they can be a veneer, yes. a lower, a higher veneer, or a lower veneer, like really whatever. And slavery historically is doled out as a punishment for breaking the law mm-hmm. or trying to live outside of the rules that have been passed down for however many years now. Correct. And it's and it is a practice that is actively still allowed. very much alive and well. Yeah. And the Crescent And City it, it is a threat. You know, mm-hmm. people live in fear of stepping out of line and being branded with SPQM. Okay. SPQM. Which is another incredible nod to it's not even mythology. This is just history. So in the Roman Empire, of course, all of the Roman slaves particularly the gladiators, if you've mm-hmm. seen the movie Gladiator. Um, Obviously. Right? So it's it's SP, SPQR mm-hmm. is what the Roman Empire used to tattoo on all of its slaves and honestly on the Roman legions as well. And also just like that's a great point. Like lots of shout out to like Roman history in this book. Like hello, the Eternal City. The like, Eternal City, the cl- Crescent like, City is built on seven – Seven gates, seven hills. The class all system of as well. You had the, mm-hmm. the plebeians and the patricians. The patricians would kind of be the equivalent to the veneer. They were the nobility. They were mm-hmm. the high. They were the people running the show. Again, Sarah had all the rights. doing her due diligence. She's, she's so good. She's so good. And she the reason these worlds are so rich is because she draws inspiration from so many incredible real civilizations and cultures that existed in society. Totally. Now that we've explained veneer... Loas. Right. And we've talked a little about the slaves. Let's talk about where the slaves fit into that kind of hierarchical ruling system of. I mean, as you can imagine, the slaves are the bottom of the bottom. Yep. Bottom, super bottom. But at the top, we're going to start there. (laughs) We've mentioned them before, but they are the Asteri. And pretty much from page zero, and I'll mention incredibly quickly, they are like these kind of otherworldly, super super-powered beings that they don't really come to the page, at least for a while, Mm -mm. but they are at the top of the totem pole. Right. So breaking down the, like, 
political structure now that we've talked about all of the geographical we've done geographical we've done demographical demographical so now we're doing the political Political. (laughs) nicely done jessica oh thank you (laughs) i'm actually like not entirely certain that that's the correct Uh, we're gonna we're gonna go we're gonna go with it but yeah so the the supreme rulers you know the supreme leader as they would say and they reside in the eternal city which is actually not on the valbaran continent it is in pangera yeah not to be confused with pangea but their presence is felt actively oh, yeah. all the time. And like we mentioned earlier, Micah is the Asteri's mouthpiece mm-hmm. in Lunetheon specifically. Correct. So, and then, the, so there are a lot of archangels that report directly to the Asteri. And we're just focusing on that one. In this story, focusing on that one geographical segment of yes. Valbaran. And the archangels, if there were to be designated, there are no official official designations between the higher veneer but the angels do tend to be the most powerful mm-hmm. veneer and so it's not that they're right like on paper mm-hmm. they're not technically above a high fae or a sh- or a wolf shifter that they are appointed to positions of power that give them more well clout. and if they were to get in a fight like if any of them were to they be paired in the fighting win. pits the angels would probably win mm-hmm. important to know we missed one tiny thing about the asteri that there are again seven asteri and this is a perfect opportunity to report more <laughs> if we're going to talk about politics <laughs> there we go even politics in a fictional world <laughs> I mean, especially in this one, you need it. Oh, yes. Um, there are, or were, originally seven Asteri. And we find out very quickly. So this yes, is not this really is a spoiler. Yes, this is something that is in the opening chapters of House of Earth and Blood. And we'll get into it a little bit more in the spoiler section. But one of them was killed during the first wars. And that's as much as we'll say about that. So although there are seven Asteri, six of them are currently in action and it's worth noting that the asteri always it's it's kind of their like brand right like there are like seven seats mm-hmm. and and seven stars yep. because each of the asteri hold apparently hold the power of the a power star. of an entire star within their being and whenever they depict themselves there is always an they're all sitting in seat they're all seated and there is always an empty seat to honor their fallen sister mm-hmm so they appoint archangels and in because they never they they never leave the eternal city. They don't need to. They Such never is their power. Right. They appoint governors and generals and and you know. in a house of earth and blood, our archangel is Micah. Hmm. Yes. And then be- directly below the archangels are the city heads. And Jessica went into these a little. Oh, yes, yeah. everybody Those that we talked about. We've got city heads. right. We've got the Under King. Mm-hmm. Let me see if I can do these from memory. The Under Let's King, go. the Fiber Queen. Yes, Autumn King. Yes, the Prime. Yes, and River the River Queen. Queen. That's five. Who are we missing? And the Oracle. The Oracle, because the humans don't have one. They, exactly. But the Oracle again, like we mentioned, she's really not a political player. She's a spiritual figure and she is a being of a lot of great power, mm-hmm. but she is not involved in the governance of Lunathion. Correct. So you re- you've got Micah and then you've got these five sort of city heads that sit beneath him. And they yeah. do have a lot of influence. They do. 
and yeah. Micah, and it's very important. I think of it as kind of like the mayor or something of a town, maybe. Yeah, yep, and Micah's the governor, and so it is a net good for everybody that these heads of the towns and Micah all have a the word I'm looking for amicable working relationship and we're gonna put amicable in quotation marks amicable everybody, everybody is does always looking out for their things. own interests for sure mm-hmm. but it's also a very delicate balance nobody wants to rock the boat correct you don't want to attract the attention of Micah and by extension the Asteri the but there said. are lots of rivalries between, between these District heads and boroughs and all of it. Yeah, all of it. yeah, exactly. So right below the city heads, I would say that the auxiliary and the full citizens and like the you know the veneer mm-hmm. are on the same. Like the auxiliary acts like a police force, but it's worth explaining because you hear it so much in the first book. Each the ox, the ox. Um, each borough mm-hmm. or section of the city has its own ox. So for example. Rune Dannon, Crown Prince of the, the Valbar and Fae. He heads up the Fae Orcs, or the Fae Division of the Orcs. And then Danica. Everybody, or, yeah. Danica is up the, the wolves. Her, She and her pack are a, are a big auxiliary unit. And they, mm-hmm. are, they are supposed to be peacekeepers. They are Correct. enforcers of the code of ethics the, the and, of the, and the law within Lunetheon, which is different are, from... The 33rd, which is the military legion mm-hmm. that is commanded by the Asteri. Answers directly to Micah and therefore the Asteri. Right. And the um, 33rd is made up largely of... I think it's... So I think it's made up mostly of... Malakin. Right? And Malakin. Although there are some other species, in quotation marks, that do make up the 33rd. It is important to note that they are technically slaves. Yes, a significant portion of them are all of mm-hmm. everybody. Who, Not all of them. Yes, a significant portion of them. Everybody who has at one point in their life egregiously stepped out of line has been labeled as fallen and so they have been stripped of their rights as citizens. But because Malakim are the most powerful veneer and they are the best and most mm-hmm. important soldiers, the Asteri have chosen to punish them with eternal servitude as to opposed death. to death. To serve the system which they fought to overthrow, Correct. essentially. And then, so you've got your citizens, uh, or your full civitas, mm-hmm. and then you have your lesser veneer, as we said before, the chimeras, yep. the sprites, the messenger otters, and then even below them, you have your mortals and your humans. So, not a place you would want to wake <laughs> up as if you were still human. Humans Correct. are the bottom of the barrel. Yeah. Which is what, which places Bryce, our heroine, in a very interesting juxtaposition in society, right? Because on the one hand, she is the lowest of the low. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, she is high fae. I mean, Which is da- one of the highest, that's like right below angels. Mm-hmm. So she's a really, really, she's at a very interesting border. It's, you know, it's one of... We've read about so many people these these stories before. It's like they belong to both, but they belong to none. And therefore, mm-hmm. Bryce is looked down on by a large section of the population. And in the very first chapters in Earth She's and Blood, not pure enough to be veneer. But not 
low enough to be human and therefore is not fully accepted by them either. She's not fully trusted by mm-hmm. humans, which is, I think, an important distinction, right? Yeah. She's not good enough for the veneer and they look down on her. But she does make a couple of references, and this doesn't really have any bearing on the plot, so I don't think it's a spoiler, but she does make a couple of references that she just never really felt like human people were totally comfortable around her because she was half fae. Which is understandable because the veneer treat fae like, I mean, like sorry, trash. the veneer treat humans like garbage, but that is kind of a cornerstone of her personality and kind of, I think, She's, how she... yes. She has a very unique yeah. perspective walking through this world because she is half human, half fae. Correct. And and we mentioned this a little bit earlier, but half breeds, in quotes, mm-hmm. they do end up maybe not in There's not a lot of opportunity. Fa- yeah. There's and, not a lot of opportunity for them. And it is- Bryce is incredibly lucky in a way, although she really, you know, she had her struggles growing up. And this is not to diminish those, but she is incredibly lucky that she had someone who was able to give her full citizen status and she was able to leave a somewhat normal life. Yes. And this is and this go to is CCU. Right. And I and I can't and she remember didn't live in Lunathion until she went to CCU. Important she was in And Indoros. then she loved it and she met Danica and she and stayed she and blah blah blah. Had and a great and you will time. read the rest. <laughs> but it is and I can't remember if I found this on the wiki or if it was in one of the Reddit threads, but that was that is really kind of the deciding factor. Like if you are a half breed, mm-hmm. the thing that makes all the difference is how powerful of a veneer is the one of your parents. And Bryce was lucky enough that her sire was a veneer of very, very significant, significant influence. influence. <laughs> and and he was able to grant her civitas and full civitas and a place in well, in exchange for her keeping quiet about some things. Keeping quiet about some things and also swearing allegiance to House of Sky and Breath. Breath. And so speaking of the Vinia and human relationships. Yes. I think that we did a great job breaking down the kind of hierarchy. If we do say so ourselves. Uh, I think that we're geniuses. Let's talk we about. We did our best, guys. I can definitely tell you that. And I'm sure we left <laughs> some stuff out, but this is just the kind of general overview. We're here to help you. Yes. Help yourself, basically. Yeah. So while we drop into the middle of the story in Earth and Blood, let's talk about the current Vinia human conflict and we won't get too into the details yeah. but it is helpful to understand where we're at right now so that is a rebellion as we mentioned before that is taking place in a separate continent there is an active rebellion yeah going on and so we far, are in a time of war we are in a time of war and so far the war is not on you know the home front so to say it is in Pangera and the other continent however there are certain players involved that are trying to bring said war closer to Crescent City. The humans, about 40 years ago, I think it is, they started not uprising again, but causing trouble, I would say, for the Asteri. And they have started to develop technology and developed different mechanisms to combat the Vinaya's magic. And that's whatever they can get their hand on. They're just... I think they were just trying to stand up for themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, there is just this resentment towards the fact that they've been condemned to exist at the bottom of society with no protection, no support, no inclusion. I mean... Into the larger society. I mean, it's... I agree with them. It's (laughs) it's, it's ridiculous. As a human, (laughs) 
I would, I would just like to say. I would also take issue. <laughs> I would probably be joining the rebellion as well. But anyway, so that is what is happening kind of across the continent. Right. Um, it's a war that's happening overseas, but it mm-hmm. is a war nonetheless, and it is creating problems and ripple effects. Well, and it's gone on for long enough that it's a little bit embarrassing for that, the Asteri that, still, that it's thing. still going on, that they cannot seem to fully squash yes, and stomp this it out. rebellion. And it also raises the eyebrow because these are supposed to be the most all-powerful beings, beings ever. Like ever. And still, for years, this piddly little human resistance majority force. resistance is which is giving Star Wars, by the way. I which love we it. love. I love it. <laughs> is still is still fighting. And they're not giving up and the Asteri cannot root them out. They cannot fully kill them. I mean, I hate to use this analogy, but they're kind of like a cockroach. Like the Asteri cannot seem to get them to die. <laughs> like, just cannot seem to kill it, right? I love it. <laughs> so I think that's just the last additional piece of really important context to understand. Because there's, like we mentioned, there's a lot of information dumped on you in the mm-hmm. first couple of chapters of House of Earth and Blood. And so we just wanted to try and yeah break that all down and sort of give you the crash course, the context. Totally. If you, I mean, I would be so honored we would be so honored <laughs> if you wanted to use this as a reference point as mm-hmm. you read keep that like because googling is a scary thing it when really you're reading a book for the first spoilers and it's beware very, of very fan dangerous. art beware yeah, of don't look at any fan art don't go to images when you talk do not talk to the image that. tab <laughs> yeah and pinterest one- has spoiled way more <laughs> things for me than any direct google search once they figure out that you're reading these books they will just serve you yeah. all kind there should be a filter for that totally spoilers versus non-spoiler now one more thing i wanted to say about the human veneer conflict is that in the present day this is the residents of crescent city are starting to get worried that this might trickle into their part of the because world because it's not going it's away it's not going away and like that's kind of where we are dropped into the story is there is a, a character called philip briggs who you who you meet in quotation marks not on the page but in the mm-hmm. first chapter he is kind of like the the extremist he leads the extremist section and he's of human this right human, yep he's yes. human of this rebel movement and he has been he tried to plant a bomb i think in the old square i can't remember exactly where it was but basically Donica's character, and you find this literally within the first couple pages, she she stopped that. And it is kind of the beginning of that rebellion. It's the first taking time. Taking root in the city itself. It's the first time. The, so very recently, the rebellion that's been happening far away overseas that the Asteri are dealing with, mm-hmm. and it's not our problem. Within the past few months in Lunetheon, it sort of Becoming crossed a the sea and became very real when this... He's kind of functioning as a terrorist. He was trying mm-hmm. to commit an act of mass murder. violence and mass murder. He's going to blow up a place where that be innocent in the name, citizens. In the name of a greater Good. cause that is happening someplace else. Correct. So that event is very much a catalyst for the events. That a transpire. lot of things that are starting to unfold. And so I do think it is important to understand his connection to what is going on mm-hmm. in the larger sense of things on this planet and that is kind of where i believe and that's where we leave you i think we can go no further (laughs) until (laughs) until you tune out everything (laughs) else you should 
absolutely be more than able to sort of pick up Mm -hmm. on your own moving forward. We just thought it would be helpful to set the stage, yeah. break down the different houses, break down the power we structures. We wish we'd had us when we were reading. Because because <laughs> it's, it's so not, confusing. It's not a safe thing to try and Google these I things because I you find out. I texted you while we were reading like, like, what? I'm so confused. So the funniest question I ever got asked by somebody who was reading these books <laughs> for the first time was um, a friend of mine texted me. And shout out to you, Olivia. <laughs> I, I love you so much. She texted me and she was like, I am so confused. What is Danica? <laughs> oh my God, is this what she... She goes, she goes, what is Danica? And I was like, and I was like, she's a, sh- so she's a shifter. A like shifter. she has two forms and she shifts back oh and God, forth I between a wolf to this and a human. And she goes, it. oh my God, thank you so much. I was literally picturing the wolf character from Zootopia. <laughs> I was so confused. <laughs> it was like, a great film. It was <laughs> one of the fun. It was. I think it's the best question anyone has ever sent me while reading these books. Well, it thank was God so you cleared it up for her funny quickly because that could have been really but tough. But we've all had instances yep. like that when you start reading a fantasy book, and, and especially like, for me because I I like read really fast and chaotically, and so I'm and you can't do that no. with these books. No, you because miss so you will much. end up being like, I'm sorry. Does this person have a wolf head on a human body? <laughs> I thought they were on four legs t- two sentences ago. <sighs> like, what is going on? It's confusing. So and there's so a lot Olivia, going on. No shade. No you brought shame. us a lot of joy. It was incredible, <laughs> and it was and it was understandable. I also, I mean, the opening line is there like, was a there was a wolf at the, at the door. door. So it must be that. But then, but then Bryce opens the door and the next thing you know, Danica's walking around on two legs, chucking her duffel bag somewhere and you're like, wait. And she's covered in like stuff. And you're like, what <laughs> is happening? So we understand it's confusing. This was for you. But now this is your official warning to yes. exit the podcast. Yes. I hope this was really helpful. I hope that you guys are really excited to start the series. Oh, and one more thing. It is, I believe, safe to read if you have not, I mean, you can listen to this if you have not yet read Tog, right? I think so. You should really have read Akata if you're going to be reading Crescent City. Yes, moving forward, I think we should just do a blanket spoiler statement. Yeah. Spoilers for the mass verse. Mm. If you have not read A Court of Thorns and Roses, first of all, please read Akatar before you read Crescent City. <laughs> um, it's essential. As per and SJM herself. And stay <laughs> off the internet after January 30th if you haven't gotten through everything yet. Um, yes. <laughs> if you have not read Akatar mm-hmm. in its entirety, if you have not read Crescent City, books one and two, I, so, I am so sorry. I cannot advise that you listen any further. No, but I would love for you to come back and listen once you have read. If you have not read Throne of Glass, listen at your own risk. I'm not, I'm, I cannot promise you that I won't mention something anything about my favorite literary character ever (laughs) of all time of all time say it again jessica i (laughs) cannot i cannot make promises that she will not come up and she is a spoiler in and of herself so correct anyways this is your big okay i think we've said it enough times right so bye bye okay bye we love you okay so for this spoiler section i think we're going to start off with the first war. Right. So we're going to get it we're going to get into a little bit more of the history. history. And the reason I put this in the spoiler section is because we could have put stuff in the first part, but you find out a lot more about the history. If you're listening of- to this, you've read hopefully and you know that the history, listen, 
History is written by the victor. Mm-hmm. And history is not always what we think it always is. Always correct. There's a lot of revisionist history that has happened in Midgard. And so we're going to go way back to the beginning. Way back. And we are going to unpack the history of Midgard as told by the Asteri versus mm-hmm. as told by really our only other source of truth, um, Adis. <laughs> but it who is, is, who is, I would like also, to mention, a little she. Biased and shady and also, also uh, he's Rigelus, the also, pot of yeah, book. There's a whole lot of, I have, I still have a whole, there's a big Question fat asterisk next, next to him. Everything that we heard from Adis Rigelus in yeah. book two. But I do just want to say, before we get into the first wars discussion, is that it is important to note that we find out about more of Midgard's history in the second book, but it is still not entirely clear. And we no. obviously and I think believe that, is for a reason. that SJM has left this intentionally to be confusing. There are yeah. a lot of holes in this history. And so we for sure do not know everything about this yet because even every guide that we could find in reddit or from yaz or it's, it's like still not complete and that well because it's open to a lot of interpretation exactly. and there are there are ways that you could interpret anything there hence the hundreds of theories that are out and there and also there's a big asterisk <laughs> by a lot of what we we're about to say because we are going to list what we know but we are also going to be doing a little bit of inferring mm-hmm. with our analysis of the history of midgard so first was Happened about 15,000 years ago. Roughly. Roughly. And the year we're in currently when you're dropped into Earth and Blood is I think around the year like 15,030 something because the houses, as we mentioned before, were established in the the year VE33. So basically, Midgard was originally essentially just humans and animals. Which is, again, incredible. like the way that Earth is today. Although I fully believe there are witches here. Oh, yes. I believe I am one of them. And (laughs) I believe that there were, at one point, dragons and unicorns. (laughs) I don't know if I'm quite there with you, but you can convince me. And mermaids. I mean, listen, only 10% of the ocean is discovered. So You can't tell me for sure they don't exist. I know. So 15,000 years ago, uh, just a quick note about the human population. Its capital city was called Pothos. And I just have to say, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. I did a quick Google before because I was like, I just wonder what Google has to I say can't. about Pothos. And, and I'm just... <laughs> Will you just read the direct, the direct result, please? So according to Wikipedia, Pothos or Pothos in ancient Greek was a settlement of the, are you ready for it? No. Illyrian tribe of the Pothini in southern Illyria. And if you know. modern Albania. (laughs) Okay, I'm fine. Although different sites in central Albania have been proposed, its exact location has not yet been found. When we read that. Like, that was just a moment of... The, Please of pardon silence. my language. My immediate reaction was, fuck off. <laughs> I don't... I cannot believe that we didn't, like, look this up beforehand. I can't believe I've never seen this posted anywhere. Right? So, yes. Take that with however I mean, you want to take it. With a big, fat so grain of something. Basically, that was this massive war, and we're going to get more into this a little bit, between the veneer and the humans. The veneer swiftly won. And so when they came over through the the Northern Rift, which we'll explain in a second, but basically what is left of Pothos's library is in Griffin Antiquities in the basement. Antiquities? Is it Antiquities? It's Antiquities. I thought it was Antiques. 
but it's antiquities. And okay. Antiques are different from antiquities. Oh. An antiquities dealer is someone who deals in like priceless ancient artifacts. And antiques are an old desk. An antique. <laughs> in that time. case, um, the remains of Pothos Library is definitely uh, not an antique. Not an antique. It is an antiquity. It is. An anti- <laughs> it is. It is a. It is a relic. It is an artifact. Yeah. It is priceless knowledge from a bygone lost era. We'll it's, talk about it in another episode. <laughs> it is unclear as to how the remains of the Pothos Library ended up in Jaceba Roga's basement, but nonetheless, that is where it is. Her basement so, of all places. Okay, wait. So I just want to make sure. So the very, very prehistoric origins of Midgard was that it was literally Midgard the way it is in Norse mythology, which is just the, the mortal, mortal realm. realm. There were just humans and animals. Correct. That was an event. The sort of the sort of history of Midgard as we know it today, and mm-hmm. as we know it today, I mean, as we mm-hmm. are introduced to it when we start this book, happened fifteen thousand years 15, ago. years ago, correct? And that is kind but of but Midgard was around for we don't way know how we long. don't even know. We assume right. way before that. millions of years. Mm-hmm. There were and dinosaurs there. There were dinosaurs <laughs> because there's Pangera. We and know, <laughs> <laughs> but. There was an event called the Crossing, which is where Faye passed through the Northern Rift, and I believe right. it was also there a was Southern some Rift. kind of shift in the universe. There was an event. We don't know what it was, but somehow portals to other worlds were opened, opened. and a whole One bunch in particular. of a whole <laughs> bunch of new creatures, types of beings, just sort of flooded. Mostly Vanilla. Can you imagine if no. that happened? No. I mean, yes, but no. <laughs> I don't know if I would be thrilled or horrified. I mean... I think it would depend on what they looked like. That's fair. If I'm being totally honest <laughs> with everyone right now. Okay, anyways, keep going. So, 15,000 years ago, mm-hmm. all these beings crossed through these portals for some... By some power that we don't mm-hmm. understand yet. And this, of course, creates conflict. Because when you have a clash of a whole bunch of races or species or beings that are competing for the same habitat, mm-hmm. there is, there without finite fail, number of resources and conflict. they are all battling for them. Yes. And so this is called, in the history of Midgard, the First Wars. Yes. And the leader of... The Asteris division of the First Wars was Peleus, right? Well, this is all. It's this all is where up, it gets. This is where murky. it gets murky because at first, right, what you learn is when the rift was opened. Mm-hmm. Yes, the veneer came to Midgard. The Asteri came to Midgard. The mm-hmm. Shifters, right? Every all of that, but through the rift also came the demons and the princes of Hell. Because whatever whatever universal event that happened that opened all these portals, it wasn't selective. It wasn't it was just, just kind the of, northern and the southern rifts. It was the gates it, opened. It was as the well. gates, right? There were just everything portals. was open. It was chaos. It's starting to sound like somebody might have like ripped open a hole in the sky. Oh, it's giving Avengers again. No, it's giving Kingdom of Ash. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. See, I told you, I told you I wasn't going to be able to help myself. Anyways, so, so, right, so there was just this cataclysmic event that Mm. allowed free reign across worlds, across the universe. People could just sort of step into and out of, that's, it just sort of seems like there was chaos. And it was basically, originally, 
humans versus veneer. Right. So the story that you the story that we are introduced to is that it was the humans were fighting against the veneer. Mm-hmm. And their but, home base was Pothos, which was that crescent city, if you will, that capital. And the humans had made incredible advances in technology, in medicine, in engineering, science, agriculture. I, I would imagine it being kind of like, I, I do, I imagine it like ancient Egypt. And I imagine Parthos as being like the Library of Alexandria. And then and when it was war, lost to history, humanity slid way backwards. I would hope that maybe Sarah drew some inspiration for that. but I could only assume. That's just because I really, really hope that there's something like more for humans. I know. I think I, I if I if I know her, I would say I think mm. that there hopefully will be. But there's also the other angle to this, which is that hell was involved in this war as well. Mm-hmm. So through the rift, the northern rift in particular, came the princes of hell and their legions, which are yes. very we'll scary. Get into the makeup of hell in a little bit. We will. But what you have to know is that Hell was not on the side of the Asteri. No. And that is that is consistent, right? We mm-hmm. do at this point believe that that was true. Where it gets murky is who is exactly allied with who as it pertains to the Starborn Fae. Well, but in general, the Asteri have written the history to say that it was them and all of the veneer they conquered the humans, mm-hmm. and that was sort of easy and small potatoes. But then they had to all defeat the armies hell. of hell. And, seal, and that battle lasted three days. And seal all of the portals in the Northern Rift so that hell could, could no longer get back get back into Midgard. What we, what we learn over the course of these two books is that that is not really the way that it happened. The Asteri did. The Asteri did come to Midgard and did conquer everything but they tried previously to conquer hell right and failed well a lot of people think they also tried to conquer prithian Prithian and failed and failed basically hell asteri don't get along at all no they do not and so what we at this point what we think is the truth and again this has a massive asterisk Asterisk because because not even all of the princes of hell are aligned in what they are telling us all the time. Right. We don't, it's very, very difficult to understand the truth of exactly how things happened. But what we think we know at this point is this event happens that opens all of the portals between worlds. The Asteri come through, defeat the humans, mm-hmm. and then they usher in all of these other beings that are ripe with power that they can feed off of. And so they start building their perfect little colony on this planet. But the princes of hell also now have access to this rich planet that is teeming Mm -hmm. with life. And they hate the Asteri. And so there is now a war between hell and the Asteri. And what we believe is the real truth is that it was actually split. The veneer as a whole, were split. Some of them fought for the Asteri, and, and some, some of them, them were fighting with the Princes of not Hell. Not unlike the current rebellion, which we didn't really get into, but of course it is not just humans. There are members right. of the Vinia that do not agree with how the humans and the Loas are being treated, and they fight, as I would call it, the good fight, mostly with an asterisk because they don't agree with everything that Ophion does. 
But anyway. But Ophion also is the extremist branch of the rebellion. And unfortunately, they are necessary because they are the ones that possess the heaviest artillery, at least from the human side of things. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the veneer have now been forced. The greatest value they have is by being covert, Mm -hmm. like by by providing intelligence, by under the table, trying to very subtly undermine the Asteri's reign. They have to play the long game. Correct. So it's just a but this but this rebellion that is happening when the story opens is not we come to find out it's not something new. Mm-hmm. It's something that's actually been happening since the beginning of, of Midgard, Midgard as we know it, but the Asteri one. Another huge piece of information we find out is that the Stoblin Fae were kind of like the warriors, I would say, of the fae that participated in the first wars, like that was the line. Because I actually don't think, I think the Asteri have been breeding and honing the Malakim over, you know, 15,000 years. I don't think they had the, the legions that they have now back then. And we do know that the fae and the Malakim are very closely matched power-wise. So back then, the high fae were really the, the only people that had a chance of going up against, against. the Asterian winning, especially being aligned mm-hmm. with the legions, the of, legions hell. of hell. And so the kind of warrior queen will call her. God, it's so hot. <laughs> her name was... Is there anything a, cooler than, than a warrior, warrior queen? queen? <laughs> I, I think not. Like, so, it's just giving Lagertha. So, like, it's giving... Oh, my God, yes. Lagertha, and I'm uh, I just obsessed with her. I a shield so maiden. Much. You would be a shield maiden of Rohan. Oh, I'm not sure, but No, you'd but be an elf you. in Rivendale. I think I would, yeah. <laughs> I, I think really, maybe I'd be a shield maiden of Gondor, if those exist. I don't think I, I would think be you cool could be enough the first. to be Rohan. I don't know how feminist they are in Gondor. I'm going to be I honest don't. with you. At least before Aragorn got there. <laughs> anyway, Taya... Princess Taya or Queen Taya was she Queen Taya was the leader of the Starborn Fae in said first wars. Yes. Now, she what we discover in the second book actually had a um, romantic affair with Prince Adis, who we will discuss in a second is the Prince of the Chasm, the fifth level of hell. I'm sorry. I'm gonna add. I'm gonna add a request to our, to my list of requests, for our good friend Sarah. Good close personal our friend close Sarah James. Personal friend Sarah. So you know how I need the Helion and Lady Autumn. I understand. Oh, you need. The I'm gonna Adis add Adis and Taya. So Taya, Taya is the the leader of the. She was the queen of the, the queen Starborn of the Starborn Fae. Now she had two daughters. One who we know, her name is Helena, or Helena, and one unnamed daughter. It's very Ravenclaw. It's very Ravenclaw. <laughs> and one unnamed daughter that I think on purpose, that name is left out of history, both from the Asteri side and from the, the extra history that we find out during Sky and Breath. It is intentionally ambiguous, I would say. <sighs> So during these wars, so she had two daughters and she had a general. So we find out that Taya and Hel are allies, and then Peleus and the Asteri are allies. And, and Peleus started out as Queen Taya's general. Correct. And he betrayed her. Correct. 
Think of it and as this Hunt is, betraying Shahar. And this is what we hear from Adis slash Rigelis in book Correct. two. Correct. So there is a fat, for me, there is a big fat asterisk over this version of the history. But we can only assume that Rigelis was telling some of the truth because he was trying to lure Bryce and gang into the Asteris he was compound. definitely trying to bait them, mm-hmm. but I still think he could have been baiting them with a lie. Correct. So Peleus forcibly married Helena, which is Taya's daughter. Which is also giving a little bit of Hades and Persephone, if I might add. And um, he um, bred her, apparently. Yes. And, and Aedas Rigelis says to Rune that Rune is a descendant of, of Peleus's Peleus line. And has his tainted, icky, starborn light. Because not all right. starborn light is the same as we will discuss later. Right. And he says that Bryce has Taya's pure starlight. starlight. Now, Taya's second daughter, unknown name, this is allegedly, she closed the gates and ran away into the night. No one ever heard of her again. And this is when... The Senate, Senate government. That seems unlikely. Seems <laughs> Seems to me like maybe she ran to <clears throat> Valen and cast <laughs> some pretty powerful spells, spells around to keep it. Shrouded it. in mystery and also safe. Sounds to me like <laughs> that's what I would do if I were her. That is when the war ended. Was when the gates were closed. Now, one very important aspect of this war was that during. It was. It was during the end of the first wars and during that final standoff between mm-hmm. the. Asteri in between the Starborn was when the Prince of the Pit, Apollyon, he ended up who was fighting with the Starborn, with the Starborn ended up killing Sirius. And Sirius is the name of that seventh Asteri, Asteri that we mentioned earlier, who they always keep a seat empty. Whom they call their sister, but Sirius, Sirius is a male, male name. So again, the gender or sex of the seventh Asteri is as of this, I'm going to go out and say, like, unknown. It's very ambiguous. But the Asteri in general are very ambiguous. Mm-hmm. I think they're kind of, like, above gender almost because they're, mm-hmm. I think their corporeal forms are... I don't think we truly know I, based on what we find out at the end of Sky and Breath. I, I almost feel like they just choose to take that form so as not to, like, scare anyone. any more than they already do well, but also um, but that's but that's also psychologically mm-hmm. it's easier for people to understand and accept things that they recognize right mm-hmm. i i don't think that's their true form i agree you know you. similar to the valg princes in throne of glass yes. they choose to inhabit the human form. humans or humanoid creatures but they, they don't are. actually but and they don't have real form and mm-hmm. their real form is something very ugly, mm-hmm. very evil, very sinister. Our, at least to our eyes. Yes. To us. So essentially when these first wars ended in chaos, one Asteri down, technically the Vinia won. Right, um, because we this- know that, we do know, I do think it is true that Aedas and Apollyon at least were fighting with the Starborn, mm-hmm. Taya's legions of the Starborn Fae against the Asteri. Which were aligned with Peleus's, Peleus's legions. legions of the Starborn Fae. Now, this is when we call it, I'm going to say, Senate government, in quotation marks, was formed at the end of right. these wars, and the Eternal City was created. When Taya was slain. Slain. So they, so they lost. <laughs> they lost. Hell and Taya's forces of the Starborn Fae lost their 
fight against the Asteri. Mm -hmm. And it is unclear exactly how that went down. Again, a lot of intentional ambiguity around this whole period of time. But we do know that Apollyon devoured, which is just a very cool word to use. And they they use it multiple times. Devoured. And now Apollyon is called the Star Eater. The Star Eater and the Prince of the Pit. And the Prince of the Pit. And he, I'm very, I'm a huge fan. Me too. I'm a big Apollyon And we'll talk about a little bit more (laughs) about what we know about the... The yeah, stay tuned for, for the episode where we deep dive on Adis. But basically, um, this is the puppet government. Everything is really, it's, it's, it's yeah, everything Lu- is truly ruled by the Asteri. Right, so still. Midgard, as we know it, is a product of the loss of this war mm-hmm. between Peleus and the Asteri against Taya and Hell. And Hell. And because Taya and Hell lost, that is how you end up with the world that you are in mm-hmm. when you begin these books. Yeah. And... And I think the one last thing that I think is really important to note, just because it really confused me, was that there are the rifts, which yeah. are the kind of the tear in the different worlds. And it's natural. And, and it exists exactly. naturally. And then there are the gates, which are almost like portals that you can open in between worlds. And they have been crafted specifically by materials that are conduits of the type of energy that would be necessary mm-hmm. to open that kind of portal between worlds and then objects that we know of that can open or manipulate said gates or not the natural tears are things like luna's horn which as we know is stolen weeks before the events in um earth and blood and Mm -hmm. that kind of like propels the entire story forward uh the star sword the the harp from silver flames like things like this can manipulate the pathways right. between worlds, and we do not know the full extent to how they play a part in the story as of right now. Right. Throughout the Massverse, there are magical, powerful objects that can manipulate things like space and time. Nicely said. And there are also characters who, at the height of their power, have been able to manipulate space and time. I'm not going to say it. Now that we've mentioned the princes of... Hell, let's talk a little bit more about that. So, <laughs> the big reveal in Sky and Breath, obviously, is that Hell are not necessarily the bad guys, at least not Which as a whole. we love. I know. Which we love. <laughs> we learned that they actually went against the Asteri, and uh, we learned that two of them did, at least. At least. Correct. Because Thanatos, the prince of the chasm, seems no, to no, be... No, 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 he's the prince of the ravine. Oh, sorry, the ravine. Adis' yes. chasm. Adis' chasm. Thanatos, the prince of the ravine, seems to be a piece of, of work. work. Okay, so here's he what we know about the prince. <laughs> so, obviously, we've talked about the seven territories of hell and levels of hell before. And hell, we find out, is its own planet. It is not like another right. plane or an underworld like I originally imagined it. And that this was helpful for me. It's like, it is actually its own physical planet, not necessarily a separate world, but it is a separate planet. We I don't think know, planet though. and world are... We don't... Again, we don't fully know the extent of I, how it separates I yet. think... This is not a fact. Mm-hmm. I think planet and world are kind of synonymous here. Although, that brings into, you know, brings into the discussion the, the concept system, of a solar system. And... and, and and we see and a galaxy in like the Autumn King's office and in Reese's office. So, so, so it could be very know. different. And so, so yes, I actually think I think hell is its own world. World, okay. So, but we do know that it is a planet as well. So it has seven territories or levels or however we want to. Or call is it. it is each level of hell a planet? We don't know. 
we just don't know. That's kind of what so, I'm leaning towards. And I also just realized that all of her chapters are named like hollow trench. Yeah. I, I, I like literally did not notice that the until today. The sections of these books are labeled. <laughs> well, the first two books are The labeled. sections of the first two books are labeled after. The seven territories of hell, which are the hollow. And I will talk about this a little more also in later episodes. But the hollow, the trench, the canyon. And they sound more ominous as you go. The ravine. Mm-hmm. Uh, the chasm. The abyss and the pit. So, how many do we have left? Uh, No, we have none left. The pit was the final pot of Sky and Breath. Breath. So, I'm really intrigued as to what Flame and Shadow, which she's going to name the pots of her book. I know. And just that was my reaction. I didn't notice either. Oh my God. I know. You just did this to me while we're doing it? I know. I'm sorry. Yeah. So, the the first three, I believe, are in Earth and Blood. Earth and Blood. And then the final four. It it might be four and three or three and four. I can't remember. Okay. No, I'm not going to do it. We'll do it later. Yeah. Okay. No, I promise. I looked before I wrote that down. (laughs) So, wow. We know that Hell's Gates can be kept closed by a starborn fae wielding Luna's horn. Or open, for that matter. Well, what we know is that Luna's horn is an object that That can can channel Mm -hmm. enough power to activate the gates in order to open that portal again. Because whatever happened at the end of that first big war between mm-hmm. Taya and Hal and the Asterian Peleus, the conclusion of that was kind of um, threefold. <laughs> one Onefold. Fold. <laughs> Shout out that, to season one, Jessica. <laughs> onefold is that the seventh Asteria was devoured. Devoured. By the pit. Hot. Hot. Huge Apollyon girls. <laughs> I think our next sweatshirts that we made for each other should say <laughs> Team Apollyon. Also, oh, maybe we should wait until perhaps some leathery, leathery wings. wings. I think we should wait and see how the third okay. book plays out. Uh, the second fold yes. is that Taya was murdered. Mm-hmm. Or slain, killed. It's okay. Yep. She was no more. Yep. And Adis was very upset about it. Yep. Also hot. So hot. Three the fold. third fold... <laughs> third fold <laughs> is that all of the portals and, and rifts were sealed. And we know that the Asteri have actually not been able, the Asteri have not been able to open them since, since the first wars. Which is important because what they actually need to do in order to survive is ensure that they can continue like breeding and evolving. Ew, I hate the word breed. The, citi- the inhabitants of this planet so that they can make them even richer and more powerful mm-hmm. so that the Asteri can continue to feed off of them. Totally. So it is worth noting that I think the third fold, <laughs> which is the most, and no one's actually said that yet besides... Micah references it when he explains to Bryce why he was looking for Luna's horn, but nobody in the books has actually outright said that the Asteri may have won that battle, but I think something happened on Taya's side. I think a sacrifice was made to seal those portals to Mm -hmm. weaken the Asteri. And that is obviously on purpose since... They don't want anybody knowing about the big, the truth, the big elephant in the room. The truth (laughs) about what happened 15,000 years ago, right? Which is at the heart of every great 
fantasy yeah, story and is the ancient lore that comes to fruition and thing that you read you at the end of it you're like oh yes. that makes sense now i just quickly want to reference the three people that we currently know reside in hell which are apollyon mm-hmm. the starita mm-hmm. prince of the pit mm-hmm. we know that as mentioned before mm-hmm. that he has um leathery wings and yes, we only we know, know this, this. because Hunt notices this when Apollyon comes to Hunt in his sleep. Now, Bryce, he also comes to Bryce in her sleep, and she notices that he may be standing in the remains of Pothos. It's like a very dusty plain, and she kind of infers that this could be the ancient ruins of the human city. That is all that we know about Apollyon and how he presents himself. Yes, leathery, not feathery. Adis is Prince of the Chasm. We know that Adis, I wouldn't say frequents Crescent City, but he, as we will talk Adis a little bit about, seems to have in a very episodes. vested interest in the goings on of of midday Crescent mm-hmm. City, and in particular Bryce, Bryce Quinlan. Now he is Prince of the Chasm, which is the fifth level of hell, unlike Apollyon, which he resides in the seventh level of hell. And That's the ravine the is the fourth, right? The ravine is the fourth. Yes. So we have not met the Prince of the Abyss. No, we don't know who the Prince of the Abyss is, and there are so, I mean, like, enter Reddit at your own risk, because there are so many theories as to who that is, but. Oh my god, what if it's uh, Dude, I know. What if the Abyss is where the Valg come from? (laughs) I know. (laughs) It's all too much, but Adis, we know that Ignore me, also. He can enter Crescent City in his cat form if he goes through the Northern Rift. Or he can only come as a human if he is summoned through the obsidian salts or in another way, as we see. Right. So we should so we should clarify. The rifts and the gates have been sealed at large. I'm going There are occasionally like right? Like it was almost it was almost like someone gave everything they had to seal it. To seal it. Made the ultimate sacrifice, if you will. mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was like they got it sealed ninety percent. Mm-hmm. Because there, are, there is still the occasional demon that will slip through. Adis can come through, but only if he leaves his full, powerful uh-huh. form behind. You can obviously still speak through the gates to other parts of Lunathion, uh-huh. but you can't go much further and than I, that. I love that. Like and 90% like, of the way sealed. Like it's, it's like still, little bits can slip. And we know that demons can slip through because people like Hunt exist who, who have been hunting demons for a long time. is Demon Hunter. Now, the lost character of Hell that we meet in Sky and Breath is Thanatos, Prince of the Ravine, which is the fourth level of Hell. He sounds, well, he is scary. We meet him. He's not a nice character. He's super creepy. Um, There's no hint of, I could be your ally. No, and he says the that. The same way that Apollyon and Adis present themselves. Apollyon and Adis present themselves. Adis fully is like, mm-hmm. uh, Adis, I'm waiting for you to Adis, activate the armies of Hell. Let's go. Adis says to Bryce, the armies of Hell await your await command. Your command. Mm-hmm. Apollyon says something a little different. <laughs> Apollyon says, I've been waiting for a formidable adversary. Mm-hmm. And it's like, and are also, you talking about... I don't, like, talk to my brother or know what he's up to. So we're not... That clearly and not Bryce is like, are hell. you talking about me or are you talking about this dairy? Mm-hmm. Like, what are you... Thanatos it's very unclear. It's just a fucking wild card. Thanatos... No one knows what's going on well, with no, him. Well, no, Thanatos is the one that says, I have no affiliation with my brothers. I don't share their proclivity so towards hell, whatever not you know like midgod it's not aligned in all of its 
aims Listen, and it's a it's a world ruled by seven men are we shocked no exactly now the last thing i'll mention about thanatos is that that is a character in um akatar and he is a random lord in the house of nightmares and i'll just leave it at that wait what yep there is thanatos? a lord, there is a lord thanatos in the house in the oh god in the court of nightmares anyway so moving on you to all we're gonna have to start we're gonna have to start a support group once once this book comes out yep so there are two more things we have to talk about. Um, one is just the uprising and Shahal's rebellion, which I don't think will take too long. And then I just want to explain a little bit about the drop and what that means because it was something that confused both of us when we read it the first time. Yes. So Shahal's rebellion or the uprising is something that happened about 200 years ago. This is this is what I would call postmodern history of Midgard. Yes. <laughs> and this is the biggest war that Pangera has seen since the first wars. Yes. Which is a little bit sad because it wasn't really a war. It was one battle. It was as- one battle, which actually was confusing to me. When I was reading it, I didn't really pick up on that until mm-hmm. like much later in the series. And maybe that was deliberate. It didn't affect my ability to understand the story but it was something I didn't really realize until it had been mentioned several times so helpful context helpful context but I think it is worth noting again like we mentioned before the Asteri began breeding angels Mm -hmm. and archangels specifically specifically. archangels I think they really leaned into that after they defeated the starborn Mm -hmm. fey and hell because they realized that they needed veneer legions to fight for them, which is interesting mm. because they're supposed to be all powerful beings that right. can smite anything. But they needed to build up a legion of veneer that were more powerful than the Fae. So they started creating Malakim and then optimizing certain bloodlines so that they could get archangels. Mm-hmm. And this is why you have angels that have varying colors of wings for anywhere from yeah. black to purest white and it's that whole grayscale gradient. And like just like as a side note, their imperial god for the Asteri as I think about 50 Malakim mm-hmm. that have wings of only the purest white, not one gray feather. So and these are these are beings that were bred and very carefully it's like the clone army kind mm-hmm. of kind of not one to one, not one but to one. Similar. Similar vibes. Now, Shaha was an archangel who rebelled. And this is this is so hugely significant mm-hmm. that she was supposed to be like the she white was, knight. Almost. Right? She she had pure white wings. She was part of the one of the prized bloodlines of the Asteri. And she had a twin named Sandriel. Sandriel. And Shaha there are theories about Shahal. We won't go into them right now. Just go to the subreddit. She rebelled against the Asteri and she led about 3,000 soldiers in her elite 18th legion. Led by her lover and general, Hunt, Hunt Athelar, who you might be familiar with at you this may have point heard of. in the story. The Umbra Mortis. Uh, he, Hunt, was in love with Shahal. I don't personally believe that she was ever in love with him. I don't I, think so either. I believe that she used him because, as we know, Hunt has the the unique gift of lightning. They were all enslaved by the Asteri after they lost the Battle of Hund. And again, this entire rebellion, it was very, very, it was a lot of buildup. It all led up to one battle that quickly was um, squashed, which is why the human... The fact the, that the, the human rebellion has gone on for years, years is shocking. Yeah. These angels from the rebellion are called the Fallen. People like Hunt. Everyone who fought for Shahar has been branded as the Fallen and they have been made slaves. 
they and they have been divvied up and they bear the SBQM and they also bear halos. I mean, she pulls from everywhere, right? So it's a it's a crown of thorns. Mm-hmm. You might be familiar. <laughs> if you've ever heard of Jesus, Jesus Christ. Christ. <laughs> so all of the fallen angels bear a tattoo of a crown of thorns across their brow. And this was placed there by witches, the witches. at the behest of the Asteri. the Asteri. Important to note that the and tattoo shackle- marks a slave the halo dampens the power. Dampens their power. So it makes them lesser. They would be unable to fight back against whomever the archangel is that they have been assigned to, mm-hmm. which is the nicest way of putting it. Mm-hmm. They were really sold. That's really what it was. But again, because these angels, these Malachim, are so vital to the Asteri's hold on control on this planet... They cannot afford to destroy a single one because they are the only force that the Asteri really fully own. own. Because nice all of said. because all of the other creatures came from another place. They existed way before. And the Asteri have done a very good job of kind of wiping that from history. Again, history is written by the victors. It's revisionist history to be sure, but the Asteri have done a very good job of kind of making all of the other types of veneer forget that they were not always beholden to the Asteri. The angels, on the other hand, really wow. kind of are. Mm-hmm. So, and, and it's really cool too when you get to Sky and Breath and Ethan has this conversation, or I think it might, it might be Bryce. It's either Ethan or Bryce has a conversation with the Prime. Actually, I think it is Bryce. And even he says, Danica started to remember what we were before the Asteri. Right. Oh, I gotta get chills just just hearing it. And that is, I think, just the biggest, I think that is the real secret that the Asteri need to keep more than anything else, is this knowledge and understanding that life existed before, before them. That was an entire history of this world before they came around. Like, and that there is, that there are other worlds, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's the massive reveal yeah. we get at the end of Sky and Breath. Of course. Is that... And this is, I think, what the Autumn King has been searching for is the truth about where they came from so that maybe he could access that world. Exactly. And this is the knowledge that is so, so threatening Mm -hmm. to the Asteri. I think that the most confusing thing for me while reading this was I got a little bit mixed up between the first wars and the rebellion on my initial read. And so when yeah. you hear about It's the, a long his like there's a very you, long complicated is, history in these books. So when you hear about people referencing the uprising or the mm-hmm. rebellion, they're talking about something in fairly recent history that was two hundred years ago. Postmodern. Postmodern. <laughs> and then when you're talking about the first wars and kind of ancient Megadian history, they are that's talking like, about that's like the origin. That's the origins yeah. of society as we know it today. Now the final thing I want to discuss And I put it lost because it doesn't really fit into anything we've talked about thus far, but I wanted to talk about it because it is so confusing when you first hear about it. It's very confusing, and it's also very important to understanding the world that you're living in. And that is the drop. And it's it's referenced a lot. And and it's not that you, like, don't don't understand it, it because she does do a good job of, like, Describing the process and describing how and why it exists. It's almost and like how I couldn't visualize it and therefore couldn't like fully get it. And I actually me. wish I had read Throne of Glass 
after I read Throne of Glass, when Aelin goes through her training mm-hmm. in Mistward with Rowan and he t- is teaching her how to dive down into her power. You understand it. The drop becomes much clearer to you. It is an event where Veneer come into their full power. And when this event happens, this stuff called first light is given off. And that is given off in proportion to how powerful you are as a veneer. And the city (laughs) harnesses your first light in drop centers. It's energy. It is energy. It is energy, right? So all veneer are born with, like, potential energy, Mm -hmm. right? And you do not have full access to it until you make the drop. Right, so you could choose to age gracefully and without... I mean, no one does. I think it's very, very... I think she says that in the very beginning, it's very rare that veneer do this. Everyone makes the drop at some point. You can choose to make it at any point in your life. And once you make the drop, depending on what species you are, if you're a fae, that's kind of around a millennia. If you're a witch, I think it's supposed to be around five centuries. It really depends on who you are, but you will have a very, very, very delayed aging cycle. You have you have delayed aging, very delayed aging. You have super healing abilities. Mm-hmm. And, and hypersensitive senses yeah your your powers kind of fully develop you come online once but, you yeah the drop. so basically what it is is all veneer all non-mortal mm-hmm. beings that have power and what i love about this series is that power and energy are kind of interchangeable which makes it more relatable to people who wouldn't normally read fantasy right like it's actually less magic and more about energy yeah no you're right I like that so every single veneer is born with this reserve this potential energy inside of them and it's almost like their bodies have to physically mature before they can kind of activate that potential energy and the drop is the way that they activate that energy and so what that is is when you actually almost fall through levels of your power and you literally reach the bottom of your power and you die and then you have approximately, I think it says in one of the books, six minutes to ascend. And you need But someone. it's called the search, it's right? It's called the search. So and when you, you go to the bottom, you have this spirit you're supposed to. It's you like, enter a spiritual journey you've and got, it takes six minutes. You've got six minutes of soul searching to, to figure, figure out, out who, who you, you are. are. And, and that then, is why you need someone who is either a very close friend or a family member to be your anchor. And so they, they give their you the life force is keeping you alive and it actually and they well, give you the push to make the ascent. Well, for everyone else, it's actually a pull mm. because they're still alive. Right. And we know so that for Bryce, other people, it's, um, it's more of a push. <laughs> but yes. And so that's a very critical piece of this world to understand because you typically make the drop in a city center. In a in a in a special chamber and it where is a government issued center where they will harness that first light that you give off during the drop, and that right. is used because to when power you, the city. Right when you die, and then when you come back to life, it's almost I I almost picture it like when someone gets shocked to restart their heart. Yeah, but it's almost like their bodies because they're veneer and they have they produce their own energy. It's like they restart their heart. And that surge of energy when they come back yeah, up I like that. produces a whole bunch of extra energy that the city can then harness 
to power the to city. power the city. Which it does, but it also powers other things. Um, I'm not even really sure that it does. <laughs> because, of course, the horrible realization we come to at the end of Sky and Breath is that actually it's just feeding the Asteri. Mm-hmm. They are now, feeding off of every single creature's energy that so exists So that first light that you give off when you make the drop is what powers the city and what the Asteri feed off of. And now, and in theory, like, hundreds of people make the drop every day. Li- yeah, like, it is... We're talking about, like, think of it as, again, New York City. There are right. millions of people here. Like, yeah. this is an immense amount of power. And think about every single time that you go to, like, the heart gate and you give a little drop of your power. All of that compounds and actually creates an incredible amount of energy. Right, but now, then you find out that all that energy that went into the gates, like, Kind of, it kind of seems like the Asteri can't really touch that. So there is a nut. There is first light, and then there is second light. And this is something we discover a little more in Sky and Breath. Second light is released when you die, and then you almost have like a second death, and that is when the second f- light is the energy that is still possessed by the soul mm-hmm. of Veneer, whose yes. bodies have perished, but their soul is still very much intact, and the soul goes. To the bone quarter, and it is guarded by the underking. Apparently, Allegedly. until all of their loved ones and anyone who rem- their soul remains a living. Their soul remains a force until everybody who remembers them about, is dead. I mean, what what is what other movie is that from? Where you die twice. One Coco. when you actually it's Coco, and then one is when you actually the last person utters your name. It's very much like that. It is very much like that. And so second light is what is released when that last person utters your name and you pass well, through. I don't I don't think the soul but that but that <laughs> but that's where it gets sticky because it's not that the souls naturally disintegrate perish. or perish. It's that once they are no longer remembered or prayed for, the underking sends them back. back either into the gate or maybe just directly to the Asteria and they are devoured for their second it, light. Again is unclear. Yes, a little bit unclear, but that's what we have inferred thus mm. far about the way that all of this works. And it's um it's not great. No, and it's like situation. super upsetting to Bryce and to Hunt when they find all this out. Well, and, and to Ethan because yeah. he knows that that is going to be eventually his brother's fate because he's mm-hmm. the only one. And of course there's this moment like in the first book where Bryce actually gives up her place. Bryce gives up her place in the, in the bone quarter for Danica. In the bone quarter so that Danica can have it because they don't think that Donica's going to be worthy because of how she begged for her life at the end. So anyway, that's getting because a little Victoria bit played the recording so, for Bryce in the interrogation so room, which is messed up. up. That is the last thing that I had huge confusion about when the I, drop was yes. confusing to me, and it was it was one of those. I felt a little bit like I was sitting in math class. I was like, okay, I accept this. But I also don't understand. But I'm never going to be able to do this by myself without your help. I'm never going to be able to like explain this to someone else. And now that I now I feel like I can because re- mm-hmm. and reading Throne of Glass did help because Sarah goes into so much detail about what it takes to funnel down into your power and how much active force that takes you to do like. The power isn't something that just naturally. No, you have like, to work for it. You have to really work for it, and it's it is a and you force. Have to face yourself as a person, right? And face the darkest parts of yourself in order to access it. And I think the drop is a really beautiful extension of that idea that she because she wrote Throne of Glass first, and mm-hmm. I think she really, I think Sarah loves this idea 
that magic or power or energy is something that everyone possesses, but only a few can really truly truly master mm-hmm. and like not that. and not become consumed by, by it. it. Oh, Jessica. That was so nicely said. Oh, thank you. You're so talented. <laughs> oh, thank you. And beautiful. <laughs> so, on that note, <laughs> we are for you, uh, hopefully under two hours. For us, it's above two hours, but I'm going to be doing some editing. We always so. <laughs> knew this was going to be the longest one. We actually promised the rest of the episodes yeah. are going to be much more concise than this, but there was just... I think our longest is around an hour after this. It's, it's not going to... There was too much. We just couldn't bring ourselves to sacrifice any of these subjects in this first episode because the world building here is, is so is, rich and is complicated. A, so incredible. And but is, it's complicated. And B, but it, you have to understand it to really appreciate all of the events that are going on because this is a very fast-paced Which book. Which I think is why we loved it so much more on the reread because we finally right. understood it all. And it yes. was like, wow, this hits different now. Everything, yes. Once you really understand the world and you're just living in the action sequences that are unfolding in front of oh you, God, it, so be, it gets so much better. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was amazing the first time around, but on the reread without having to constantly be like, what is happening? No, it was, and you it was fully so, enjoy it and soak it up and let it just wash over you. You could really just emotionally invest in it because yeah. you weren't actively trying to cerebrally keep up with yes, the world I that agree. you were in. I agree, I agree, I agree, I agree, I agree. I agree. I agree. <laughs> okay, and on that note, we will set you free. Okay, <laughs> seriously, uh, thank you if you're still with us. This was this was the big one. This it's is the big get one. Easier from here. The rest on of them are going to be much quicker, I promise, and they're going to be a lot of fun. I'm not, not as dense. I'm not going to plug the pot the. The nope. handles again. You, if you're here, you know where we are and we know. love you. Okay, guys, thank you. We love you. And good Six night. Six week countdown. <laughs> Let's go. Here we go.